Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Introvert Theater Podcast. This is Sergio, and today we're going to be talking about John Carpenter's The Thing, released in 1982. Naturally, it was directed by John Carpenter, with cinematography by Dean Cundy, a score by Ennio Morricone, effects by Rob Botton, and starring Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, Keith David, and Daniel Moffat, among a host of others. It's... um, the, the title itself, John Carpenter's The Thing, is an important distinction because it it helps distance itself from the 1951 version, The Thing from Another World, both of which are based on the novel Who Goes There, which was released in 1938. And I say that because it's, it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. They're actually both really good films, but by comparison, the 1951 Thing from Another World is, is very tame, we'll say. So the plot um, starts off in, an, in Antarctica. We open on a Norwegian helicopter that's pursuing a sled dog, and there's two gentlemen in that cop in that chopper, and they're you know shooting at this dog for reasons, of course, unknown to us. And we're not even technically sure if they're shooting at the dog per se. That that dog could have very well been tracking something for all we know. But. Eventually, this dog finds its way to an American research center, not too far from the Norwegian base. The chopper lands in front of the base, and, you know, shit hits the fan. Um, one of the gentlemen leaves the chopper and is continuously shooting at the dog and ends up injuring one of the American researchers. And eventually, he ends up blowing up him, the chopper and himself. So this dog, this poor dog that's been chased during the opening of the film is left with these American researchers, and naturally they're left with questions that are unanswered until R.J. McReady and another member uh, take their chopper and decide to investigate the uh, Norwegian base. And in doing so, they find that it's just completely been sacked. Anyone who's there is dead. Um, It's just completely iced over. And they actually find a malformed human. And and they look at it, and it's barely even noticeable. You know, you can distinguish some teeth and maybe a jawline, and you know, other bits and human, other bits of human pieces just kind of strewn through, strewn about. So they decide to collect it and take it back to their base. And the dog itself is corralled along with the other dogs at the American camp. And as it's kind of shut in for the night, it sits there, and the other dogs are just kind of resting, and all of a sudden their attention focuses on this stray dog, and they start panicking as it starts convulsing, and these um, tentacles, for lack of a better word, kind of grow out of it, and it just starts, its bones start snapping, and all these unnatural things happen, and he ends up killing all of the other dogs in the corral. So... Naturally, everyone is alerted to the scene, and they end up burning the thing alive, and and they bring in the dog for research as well. The biologist Blair actually studies the charred dog and finds that it, unlike the its charred counterpart from the Norwegian site, doesn't have any sort of human biology. It doesn't mimic anything, but it is, he finds in, in his studies, trying to mimic at least a dog. 
So they find that this creature, whatever it is, can imitate just about anything it comes into contact with. Now, there is um, surveillance footage that's retrieved from the Norwegian camp. Eventually, they they study the, the surveillance footage and find that there's a dig site with an alien spacecraft that's estimated to have been buried there for at least 100,000 years. So some time passes, and paranoia kind of sits in, and Blair goes absolutely nuts, and he sabotages them and smashes their radio equipment to prevent any sort of communique. And his justification is that he's trying to prevent the creature from leaving. So, naturally, cooler heads prevail, and they eventually subdue him. And R.J. McReady, uh, played by Kurt Russell, suggests that they lock him up in a shack outside of the base. You know, just a couple hundred yards out, I guess. So Blair is locked up, and RJ's in in the shack with him. And Blair says that he feels that he can't trust anyone. And so RJ just kind of looks at him, and he tells him, Hey, you know, trust is hard to come by, but I'll tell you what. Why don't you trust in the Lord? And then I'll, I'll talk more about that quote later. But eventually down, well, within maybe the next couple of minutes of the film, 30, 40 minutes out, uh, they've experienced things, you know, certain crew members are, have been taken over by the thing and burned to a crisp and buried and the, it, it really, the isolation really sets in and the distrust just grows thicker. So what McReady comes up with is kind of a, a test um, to see if they can find find out if any of the remaining survivors um, are even human. So what he does is he ties him in a select few, tie up anybody that's left, and they draw blood into a Petri dish. And McReady, with his flamethrower, um, heats up this... Uh, this um, this cord and this metal cord and he he puts it to the blood and knows that it'll react to any sort of heat and eventually it does and you know they they find that one of them is in fact the alien and they torch this individual too so eventually this leads to this really big you know showdown as these movies tend to go, between the surviving creature and the final three members, three or four members or so of this team. And it's it's probably the, the least strongest, I guess, act in this in this film, but it works because it has to tie itself up eventually, right? And they defeat the creature, and of course RJ McReady and Childs are the last two members left, and even then there's a, a sense of mistrust, despite the fact that they've blown up <laughs> the entire um, the entire base, and really there's nothing left. So they're just sitting there in the rubble, and they decide, you know what, screw it, we're the only two left, what reason is there to distrust one another? And they share a scotch, and you just sit there and, and accept the, the inevitable. They know that they're not going to last the night, They'd be lucky to, at that point. 
and the movie ends with uh, a roll of the credits. So why does this work? This works, this film works because of the sense of isolation created by the cinematography. It's really interesting the way it's shot because you open up on this really expansive shot of Antarctica. And it's really, I mean, there's not a whole lot to look at. I mean, it's a lot of snow, obviously. And it's set during the day. And if you look out, all you're going to see is snow and hilltops, and that's about it. It's not a whole lot to look at. But it's it gives you a sense of scope, at the very least. And all this goes away the, the darker uh, the film gets. Once you get into kind of the meat of it, you know, once people start dying and a sense of distrust grows, then a lot of that surrounding is draped in black. You know, it's it. a lot of the scenes from that point forward are set at night, so really, you can't see anything beyond the perimeter of the, um, of the U.S. research base. Aside from that, another thing that helps is the score by Ennio Morricone and John Carpenter. And it's it's really less of a score, maybe, uh, and more so ambient noises, I guess you can say. Very similar to, to John Carpenter's scores in, in his earlier films. And it works because it's more of like a, um, I guess, a synth-based score. So there's nothing orchestral about it. So, in a sense, the the score is very limiting... It, it limits itself to a, a certain palette. You know, it, it can't rely on other instrumentation. So in a way, it kind of reflects um, the living situation for the researchers because they're limited to their supplies and what they have in front of them. It's not like they can just reach out and, and you know, pick and choose what they can eat for the day. It's, it's all very constricted. And the sense of paranoia is a big reason as to why the film works. Because that sense of distrust among that core group of, of individuals really drives the film. It's, it's less about the creature and more about the sense of trust between these individuals. And and they're all, you know, different nationalities, different faiths, and yet they're, they're stuck in this one place and forced to rely on each other despite the fact that things kind of get out of whack from time to time, um, it takes someone like R.J. McReady to kind of um, take control and assert himself and really become the leader of that group. And naturally, the creature effects are a huge aspect of this film, if not the core aspect of this film. And it, it doesn't make it any lesser of a version compared to the 1951 film, but it does distinguish itself from it in that it has its own visual style. And it's all... <laughs> it's all really gruesome, for lack of a better term. Um, in fact, I think if you're... if you're a weak-stomached individual, I would hesitate in, in, in uh, recommending this film because I think it still holds up pretty well, despite the fact that a lot of the effects are, are a combination of chemicals, foods, 
rubber and mechanical parts. So they didn't have CGI to rely on like we do these days. And that works to to the benefit, I think, of the film because everything is practical. So everything has a sense of weight to it. You know, you see these creatures crawling across the floor and these tentacles flying out all over the place. And the fact that they're really there, um, even if it's just wires, you know, being pulled off to the side somewhere to move these things, it 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 has a sense of weight to it. And you, you never lose that like you do with a lot of CGI. So... What is there to take from this film? And that's a question I wanted to ask myself, um, mainly because I didn't really want to focus on horror films, but given that we're in October, I did find myself in the Halloween spirits. And I, I think the next episode is going to be very telling in that it's going to be another horror film. And I, I think it's important to cover horror films, or at least talk about them when when there's some subtext or context to them. I think a lot of horror films are easily dismissed because they're oftentimes seen as schlock or, you know, trash. And I'm not going to lie, there's some really bad ones out there. <laughs> I recently saw one um, that played off more as a comedy, and I'm not going to say what it is be because, like I said... That's not what this podcast is about. Um, I want to reinforce the positivity in film. And besides, I got a good laugh out of that last horror film that I did see. So it wasn't a complete waste. But from this film, I guess you can go back to the quote about um, trusting in the Lord that RJ um, relays to Blair. Because Blair is at his, at his lowest point, and he's not sure who he can trust. And I think that applies just to everyday life. I mean, you know, trust is, is in fact, hard to come by. It, it takes a lot of um, investment in somebody to really just kind of place your trust into that per person and, and, and allow them to reciprocate that. So... In this instance, um, RJ says it kind of in a condescending manner, but ultimately, by the end of the film, his sacrifice is for the greater good and to protect humanity, because obviously this, this creature is trying to make itself, um, make itself spread globally, which I believe they estimated if the creature escaped Antarctica could over the course of maybe three or four years, I guess, if you did the math, just kind of take over. And his acceptance of his sacrifice at the end by drinking scotch with childs, I think, just kind of shows that not only is he accepting and and unafraid in that moment, but it's it's also just kind of a subtle change in his persona. Right, because the, throughout the whole film, he's very assertive and and very quick to tell people what to do without a second thought, and it makes him unique because he he kind of maintains his um, 
common sense until the end. And ultimately, he's happy to share a drink with with a with a, with a friend. And when it all comes down to it, I think that's something we can all relate to. You know, it's it's not this big lesson um, that we're supposed to take from this film, but there there is some context there, and there is a lot more to this film other than special effects. So, like I said, I wasn't going to focus on, on horror films, but the Halloween spirit caught up with me, and the next film that I'll be talking about is Frankenstein, the original classic starring Boris Karloff. Um, so a bit about the, the format, I guess. I'm trying to become more comfortable in my skin when it comes to this podcast. A lot of the times, uh, depending on the source material, if it's something that I don't feel comfortable enough with, I'll create kind of an outline, and I think I mentioned this before, but I've noticed that a lot of these outlines... Not a lot. A few of these outlines have become more more scripts. And I hate reading off of scripts because it, it ends up sounding very robotic. And that's one thing I don't want to put my listening audience through. Because I'm, it's called the Introvert Theater Podcast for a reason. So I guess I can come across that way um, either way. So the next few podcasts, I'm going to try and loosen up a bit. And there's one more thing I wanted to touch on, too. Um, Buzzsprout, which is the site that hosts this podcast, uh, using the site, I've noticed that I have at least one listener <laughs> in South Korea, uh, South Africa, Mexico, Poland, India, the UK, Australia, uh, Argentina, and I believe I have covered everyone. So if you're still listening, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, spread the word if you enjoy it. If you're joining the first, uh, if you're listening for the first time, again, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, this podcast is is put together with the intention to celebrate film. Uh, films that I enjoy, naturally, from a certain perspective, and not to tear them apart. There's enough podcasts and YouTube channels that kind of revel in stuff like that, but that's there's enough negativity in the world, and I don't want to add to it. So with that, um, thanks for listening. If you haven't seen this version of the thing, or even the 1951 version, I recommend watching them both. Um, if you can, swing it. Watch them both in one night. Why not? They're both really, really good films, and I think it's it's really inexperienced to watch them back-to-back. -back. We actually did that in one of my college courses, one of my film courses, years and years ago. And it was interesting to note the similarities and the differences. So if you ever get the chance to watch them both back-to-back, -back, go for it. Um, and like I said, the next episode will be covering Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff. 
And I have some plans for November already. I want to cover short film because there's one short film in particular that I love that I've just seen recently within the last year or so. It's, it's a 15-minute film, and I'll talk more about that some other time. And until then, oh, also in November, I, I want to cover, since, we're on, since I'm on the subject of short film, I want to cover music videos. It, it seems like um, like a lost art, right? I mean, you, you don't see music videos as much anymore. Granted, MTV's isn't really there to kind of sell, you know, what they're catering. So it's a lost art, and there's a few music videos that I particularly enjoy. And I'm probably going to cover, the plan is is right now, cover three different music videos in one episode. Uh, one of which will be by one of my favorite bands, U2. And I want to talk about how the music and what we see in the videos and how th- how those two components um, sort of elicit an emotion and how they can sometimes contrast what we perceive based on the the vocals or the lyrics and compared to what is actually seen on the screen because those two things don't always mirror each other, right? So I'm kind of looking forward to that. But other than that, again, thanks for listening. Um, sorry if this one this went on a little too long. Like I said, I'm working on the new format, and I think the less I script this and the more I force myself to become comfortable with just kind of um, shooting at the hip, I guess is the term, then I think the more it'll benefit the podcast and myself in the long run. So thanks again for listening. I think I've probably said thanks like three or four times now, but thank you for listening, uh, anyone that does listen. And we will catch up in the next episode, which is going to be on October 19th. Until then, take care, drink your water, and see you next time.